Well, hey, everybody. This is No One Knows Anything, the politics podcast from BuzzFeed News. I'm Evan McMorris Santoro. We are recording today live here at the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia. It's Wednesday afternoon, and the big story tonight is going to be President Obama's speech to the delegates. I'm actually sitting just steps away from where he's going to give that speech, just off the convention floor in a cartoonishly undignified assemblage of folding tables known as Radio Row. Um, but it's a very exciting show today. With us today is John Dickerson, the host of CBS Face the Nation, and the guy behind my favorite political podcast of all time, Whistle Stop. This is a show where John dives deep into presidential campaign history, telling stories of all the trail gone by that are usually very closely tied to the current campaign, which is what's so interesting about it. You learn a lot about what's going on in, on the trail today by looking at what happened on the trail back in the day. John has turned his show into a book, which is out in just a week. So, John, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I I'm, love, this that, is, that was I'm great really to... very, very exciting. Oh, for well, me. so well, that's great. So am I, and I love that the, the, your description of the of, of whistle stop is better than any I've come up with. So I appreciate that. <laughs> so, listen, let me just jump right into this. Every day, people wake up and look at the current campaign between Trump and Clinton, and kind of like slap their foreheads and say, "Well, that that has never happened before." How right are they? Well, you know, in the election of 1842, there was a reality TV show candidate. <laughs> you know, they didn't have TVs, but he just... So there was no election of 1842. Um, no, I mean, so on the one hand, there's never been anybody like this uh, who beat 16 other candidates who were all pretty, you know, a pretty strong, a very strong field in the Republican Party. But on the other hand, there are... And you can find campaigns, even the first campaign, really, where you had a candidate really campaigning in 1840, William Henry Harrison... When Donald Trump flies his plane over a stadium and we think, man, that is like a circus we've never seen before. In 1840, they spent eight hours at campaign rallies getting drunk and basically it's like a big parade with floats. <laughs> you know, William Henry Harrison was the log cabin candidate. They had an actual log cabin roll down the lane with like 10 guys on the, on the um, roof of it. Nobody was talking about policy. It was all basically just a drunken party. And so in that sense, when we say, oh, campaigns are so frivolous and so much like a circus, they're actually more elevated than the first campaign in 1840. Who is the candidate people should study if they want to understand what's going on with Trump, for example? Wallace. I mean, because Wallace... So that's Alabama Governor George Wallace, who ran as an unapologetic segregationist throughout the civil rights era. So in 64, George Wallace is on the ballot in, in Maryland and Indiana, and it does a lot better than everybody should, thinks in the Democratic Party in the primaries. But that's it, and he moves on. 68, he's such considered such a joke by the pundits at the time that they think that he's basically a fake candidate put into the race by the Johnson forces to steal votes from Nixon. And to basically, uh, that's all he is. He's not like a real guy. So then he surprises everyone by not only finding a bunch of votes in the South that becomes such a threat to Republicans and Democrats. He then starts to pick up real support in the North. And what basically he's tapping into is the same sense of disappointment in the government, the same sense of resentment to a federal government that comes in and reaches into your life. It's interesting, in, in, the, in the current campaign, there's a lot of resentment at the failures of the federal government. And Donald Trump is promising a more um, activist and successful federal government, but he's not running a big get government out of my life campaign. Right. Wallace was running a big get government out of my life because there was busing legislation and housing legislation. 
that was telling people, you know, your home is not your castle. Your kids are going to have to be bused across town or kids of a different color are going to be bused into your neighborhood. Right. But that idea, the idea that there's basically this class of people who are ruining the American dream. In that case, it was blacks and hippies and commies. Today, Donald Trump is with immigrants. So a lot and the language is the same. The, the voters said, you know, I just love his common sense. I mean, he may not he may not say things I agree with, but he really speaks his mind. And, and the quotes sound exactly like they, they're talking about Donald Trump. today. I mean, Wallace was pretty happy saying that he was a racist. I mean, segregation now, segregation forever, segregation, you know, yeah, I mean. Well, so this is the tricky thing about Wallace. He would say, no, I'm not a racist. Okay. So he was a segregationist, but he would say that's just the way things should be. And, and but, but I mean, he based that idea on the fact that blacks were inferior, you know, and, 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 and had the, the um, citizens councils and the KKK helped his campaigns in, in uh, when he was running for governor. So he was, if he wasn't a straight up uh, overt racist, he was benefiting from the political organizations of people who were straight up racist. There's a great episode of Face the Nation where they're trying to basically pin him down on his crime positions. And he's they're basically saying, I mean, isn't your message a kind of racist message? And he keeps dodging it. And he keeps dodging that label and basically saying, I'm not talking about law and order because I want to scare people about blacks. I'm talking about it because it's a real issue. You think that the situation that existed on this side of the Edmund Pettus Bridge on Sunday was a riot? Uh, the Negroes were this, standing this in a line waiting and asking to have a I word with your troopers, that, Mr. Sir. Mr. Benton, and I want to say again that my orders have always been to use a minimum amount of force. No force if necessary. For goodness sakes, don't let anybody get hurt. I've said that over and over and over. That's no, all. Was the amount of force used last Sunday well, the minimum required? Was it the, the minimum required? That matter at the present time, as a result of the charges of police br brutality, is under investigation. But I'm not going to be stampeded or blackjacked, as Mr. Johnson said, into making any accusations against the police because some outside agitators themselves have accused us of police brutality. Because clubs were used on Pennsylvania Avenue the other day in clearing the street of people who lay down for 30 minutes. Now, when you say was the settlement situation the same, I want to again say that we don't want anybody to get hurt. And I'm just as remorseful about injuries to any American citizen as anyone. So he perfected the dog whistle where he could talk about law and order and have legitimate reasons to do so. I mean, there are northern cities where there are marches against the war and racial equality that turn into riots. Right. And he says, look, that's, you know, there's there's rioting in the streets. We've got to stop that. And what was... Um, there's nothing in that language that was offensive, but of course the message he was sending is, I'm the guy who's going to take care of those African Americans who are, you know, who, who scare you. This might be a little esoteric even for you, but the messaging you're talking about, was it important at that time for someone like Wallace to have, you know, like blacks for Wallace? Like you, Trump has his Latinos for Trump and you see this coming out. Did that happen then? You know, it's a really good question. I, I don't know. I don't think so. But what he did used to say is that his wife, so, you know, Wallace ran, then he was uh, term limited or, uh, and so then his wife, Lurleen as Wallace, governor of Alabama. as governor of Alabama. Right. And then he couldn't serve a third term. So his wife, Lurleen, ran for governor basically on the open promise that he would be running everything, even though she was the governor. That's amazing. So what he says is she got more blacks than any other candidate. But that's sort of like being the tallest mountain in Kansas. Like, <laughs> and it's like Donald Trump says, I do, I do tremendously well with Hispanics in Nevada. What he's talking about is Hispanics who voted in the Republican caucuses. Not a big number. So Wallace is your person to look at if you want to know about Trump. What about Clinton? Who's your historical figure for Clinton? 
I mean, I, this is a slightly cheap comparison because it's um, so James G. Blaine in the election of 1884 runs against Grover Cleveland, was a secretary of state uh, like her, had a, basically an email scandal. Uh, it was a letters scandal, but it was <laughs> had his own scandal about his private correspondence. So um, and was a character who people didn't trust and had a series of, of issues. I mean, to the extent that we've seen a lot of articles where people list the, the issues that caused the trust deficit for Hillary Clinton. James G. Blaine had the same thing. There was a famous cartoon of him um, wearing a toga and having the toga stripped away. And, and under, on his body, he had tattoos of all the scandals that had followed him. And so in a sense, that's somewhat similar. And the email which we can talk about if you want, but the <laughs> parallels between the email server and the letters is, uh, is, is, uh, well, give me a taste of it. I, I, I'm not here. Yeah. So let's I mean, see if I can do the short version. My ears just totally peaked now, obviously. So we're talking about the old email. Scandal. Uh, Blaine is the speaker of the house and basically he helps uh, railroads get land grants. Um, uh, and in return, get some bonds from the railroads. There's an accusation that his bonds, which become worthless, are redeemed by the executives at the railroad. So basically, his bonds are worth about ten bucks, and they buy them back at fifty bucks. You know. Okay. So sure. he makes a killing. Yeah. And and uh, he defends himself on the floor of the house, and it's a huge success, and he's seen as a clear victor. Well, the Democrats take control of the house, and they the Judiciary Committee holds a hearing about whether the, there was this quid pro quo and whether he had uh, this this illegal purchase back from the railroads. Basically, it's going well for Blaine. Suddenly, they sh there's a man named Mulligan who works for the railroad station, comes and basically lays out the scheme where Cal where where uh, Blaine gets money from the executives at the railroad station. Blaine denies it all. Mulligan says, well, I can prove it because I have these letters. They adjourn. Uh, Blaine, because he has an ally there, gets the, the hearing adjourned, goes to Mulligan, says, I'd like to see those letters. Mulligan says, no, I'd like to see those letters. Mulligan says, no. Finally, lets him do it on his honor. Blaine bolts with the letters. The next election cycle, Blaine is going to be the nominee. In fact, he is the nominee. One more of these letters shows up. It's a letter from Blaine to the railroad executive giving him instructions on how to say Blaine is innocent with a long story about how Blaine couldn't possibly have been involved in this scheme to enrich himself. But at the bottom of the letter instructing the railroad executive, he writes, burn this letter. The letter does not get burned. And therefore, Democrats at every rally heckle and chant burn this letter. Uh, and that becomes the thing, one of the things that drags down Blaine. Feel the burn. Feel the burn, Feel indeed. the burn this letter. Exactly. What strikes me about this is, it, it, is it like the clinton scandal in the sense of, uh, or the Clinton controversy with emails or whatever, about in terms of how complicated it is, but also how simple it is. Right. It's very complicated, but it comes, you know, don't burn the letter, right? Yeah. And then it gets... Exactly. Um, so the other thing that's happening, right, of course, here in Philadelphia is this ongoing Bernie-Hillary split. Obviously, the first night was a lot of booing. That's kind of toned down a bit since then. A lot of Democrats that I talk to, that I talk to here in Philadelphia, are pretty freaked out about how divided their party looks on television this week. Yeah. I wonder if, if they should be. Like, is that something that has ha has been a problem for Democrats in the past? Is that something you can put in some sort of historical context? This kind of convention with this kind of appearance for Democrats. Well, the biggest, the biggest, most the, the contemporary example on the Democratic side would be Kennedy in 1980, where um, he fights Carter for the nomination and loses the same way that Sanders lost to Hillary Clinton. But unlike Sanders, Kennedy comes to the convention and says, I'm going to fight it out and basically tries to unbind the delegates. He doesn't succeed. 
But then even though he hasn't succeeded, he still, two things happen. One, he gives his dream shall never die speech, right. which is this rhetorical call to arms for the liberal wing of the party. Um, and everybody looks at him and says, oh my gosh, he's our hero. And Jimmy Carter isn't. May it be said of our campaign that we kept the faith. May it be said of our party in 1980 that we found our faith again. And may it be said of us both in dark passages and in bright days, in the words of Tennyson that my brothers quoted and loved, and that have special meaning for me now, I am a part of all that I have met. Too much is taken, much abides. That which we are, we are. One equal temper of heroic hearts, strong in will to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. For me, a few hours ago, this campaign came to an end. For all those whose cares have been our concern, the work goes on, the cause endures, the hope still lives, and the dream shall never die. And then Carter and then, lost. And then, uh, yeah, yeah, and then Carter <laughs> went lost, so Carter blames some, you know, they, they blame, the, some of the Carter forces blame Kennedy for creating that brutal sense of despair. And what's interesting is at the beginning of the campaign, when Kennedy is kind of bouncing along the water thinking about a run, the Carter forces basically say, let's run against him. Because if we beat him, they'll think of, it'll, it'll elevate Jimmy Carter's stature. He'll look like a giant killer. Got it. And because Kennedy was a giant still, you know, I mean, every campaign after his brother's death in 1968, it was always, you know, 1972, what's Dead Kennedy going to do? And then when McGovern wins the nomination, it's, well, let's get Kennedy to be the running mate. It was always, and going back through this history, it's like, where's Ted Kennedy? What's Kennedy going to do? So he was a big deal, even though you had an incumbent president. So they're sort of hoist by their own petard in the end because they allowed, there are things they could have done on health care, for example, with Kennedy to kind of keep him out of the race if they'd basically made a deal with Kennedy way early. Mm -hmm. and um, Or that's the thinking anyway. But they decided, let him run. And mm -hmm. we'll beat him, and that'll help Carter. And it definitely didn't. So do you, But does this feel like the same kind of division as 80? No, I don't think so. It doesn't feel like it. I mean, you know, the speech that Bernie Sanders gave was a, basically a full-throated endorsement of Hillary Clinton. Right. There's not any of the... It's a much different view you know there's the famous moment where kennedy is supposed to grab carter's hand and both raise their hands together it kind of didn't happen right well here you had bernie sanders you know when the vote roll call vote was over saying to, to vote by acclamation for hillary clinton that was a huge symbolic moment in support of hillary clinton that carter never had from kennedy and another obviously the other big story out of philadelphia the bigger story maybe is the nomination of hillary clinton the first woman to be a top of major party ticket do you have a sense uh, from your book or a sense of, of the research that you've done of what happens in politics when these kind of ceilings are broken? Like, what, what happens in the country when these kind of things actually happen? I don't know whether, I mean, I guess we'll have to see. Obviously, with Barack Obama, his coalition, the role of African Americans was huge. And right. so being the first African American nominee of a party really helped him, both in 8 and really in 12. So we'll, we'll just have to kind of see if that happens with women on Hillary Clinton. We see that she is polling ahead for white college-educated women, which has traditionally been a Republican constituency. If that sticks, part of it will be contributory because they don't like Trump. 
but part of it might also be because, you know, there's finally a woman president, or excuse me, a woman nominee of a party. But right. I think we're just going to have to let that play out um, to see if it's anything like, you know, Catholics for Kennedy or African Americans for Obama. Favorite presidential campaign ever? Uh, oh, golly, that's <laughs> like you're saying which is your favorite child. <laughs> I, I'm a, I, I love 1884 because of James D. Blaine, who's like new, totally new to me. And by the way, the other candidate, Grover Cleveland, was the one who had a, out of wedlock birth. And it's the one where the, the chant, Mama, where's my pa? Yeah, um, it's a good episode. So the, the other thing about 1884 is it's, the, it's a campaign where you have two candidates who are totally laden with problems in the way that you have Trump and, and, and Clinton are laden with problems. So it's the last campaign I go back to that has two candidates who are so uh, full of troubles. So... For the moment, I'll stick with 1884. What's the dirtiest presidential campaign ever? I, you gotta, it's got to be 1800, I think. Election of 1800, obviously Thomas Jefferson versus John Adams. So 1800 is the one that, that people often go back to because it's where Thomas Jefferson supposedly called John, Afri, uh, John Adams a uh, hermaphroditical character. So, actually, it wasn't Adams who did that. Sorry, it wasn't Jefferson. It was a guy named James Callender. And Callender was responsible for the first two sex scandals in America. He is the one. People may have heard of Hamilton playing at the Richard Rogers Theater. <laughs> so, uh, Mariah Reynolds, which Hamilton uh, cast album listeners or viewers will know about, is the one with whom Hamilton had an affair. The story, the guy who broke the story of the affair was named James Callender. He was a drunk, a Scotsman who um, was basically described at times as being um, lice-ridden, was um, just this totally insane character who basically outs Hamilton and is responsible for Hamilton then responding. It is to Calendar that Hamilton is responding when he writes his 196-page explanation of his affair, which ends Hamilton's career. And it's the thing that David Diggs sings, you know, he ain't yeah. never going to be president now. That's based on Hamilton responding to this guy, Callender. Callender's essentially hired by Jefferson to beat up on the Federalists and John Adams. And um, writes just, well, he wrote horrible things about Washington, but then be beats up on Adams in something called the prospect before us. Let's get a couple of lines from that. When a chief magistrate is, both in his speeches and his newspapers, constantly reviling France, he can neither expect nor desire to live in peace with her. Take your choice, then, between Adams, war, and beggary, or Jefferson, peace, and competency. It's such an um, attack on Adams that Adams uses the Sedition Act to throw Calendar in jail. He's the last one to be jailed under the Sedition Act. While Calendar's in jail, he gives the president the finger and writes another another chapter, which he entitles More Sedition, in which he just attacks Adams more. So Jefferson wins. Calendar says, OK, time for my payback for getting you elected. Jefferson doesn't answer his letters. Literally, totally just puts them all in the spam folder. <laughs> Calendar gets really angry, comes to Washington, meets with, uh, with Jefferson's aides and says, where is, first of all, my fine pay back my fine for being thrown in jail and make me postmaster of Richmond because I did all this stuff for you. In the end, he doesn't get the gig and he says, okay, now I'm going to destroy your life. So he first prints all the letters between him, him and Jefferson in which they're concocting all the schemes to beat up on Adams. So Jefferson's going around being virtuous and saying, oh, these newspapers that write these horrible stories, they're so bad for our republic. And he's the one completely funding them. He's writing them in some cases. When he was Secretary of State, he was leaking documents to them. 
So he's kind of called out by his letters being printed by Callender. It's a huge thing, but he doesn't stop there. Then Callender uh, writes about Sally, Sally Hemings, uh-huh. which is Jefferson's mistress, his slave, who is his mistress. Uh, and so Callender also breaks the story of Sally Hemings, which is the other great sex scandal in the early republic. But unlike Hamilton, who writes that long response to Callender, Jefferson basically is like, blah, 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 it just blows it off. And it becomes a rumor, and then ultimately we've now have all learned that Sally Hemings was real, that she had children with Jefferson, several of them, and that history goes on. Callender had a bad end. He basically got into a fight with the, the Richmond Recorder, was the newspaper he was working with, and they got a fight with the publisher, became an even bigger drunk. Uh, a teetotaling day for him was just to be drunk once during the day. Um, <laughs> Anyway, he gets very drunk, goes to bathe in the James River, ends up falling in three feet of water and drowning. And that's and he died on July 13th, um, 213 years ago. You know, a big theme here is like, the, you know, the hashtag never tweets, like hashtag never correspond. You know, that seems like the right. All right. Yeah. Okay, okay. So the last question is, if all the presidents who have ever been president ran against each other this year, who would win? Including the current candidates? So would Trump and Clinton be in the mix, too? It's up to you, man. All right. Um, wow. So who is the best campaigner? I mean, you've got to. Well, so here, think about Andrew Jackson, right? Andrew Jackson was a very Trumpian figure, but he had in battle what Trump has maybe in business. He was also, you know, many members of his own party thought he was a total hothead and a nut. And they tried to bring him up on charges for basically he sort of broke a bunch of treaties with the Indians. I mean, he was a slaughtered Indians like you know not a good guy but Jackson heck of a campaigner and also had that kind of you know get tough on terrorism aspect to him and a mean and a you know tough guy he had two bullets in his body they they rattled around like marbles it was described because from duels that he'd been in and survived but the lead was still in him because you know they didn't have a lot of techniques for getting it out back then so I don't know I mean FDR was amazing Kennedy uh, Truman in 48, an amazing campaign. So I don't know. I can't do it. I can't, can't do pick it. the one. I can't pick the one. But those, right. those would be my um, top contenders, all those ones I've mentioned. Those would be the ones that make it maybe through the primary to so the final yeah, round. Yeah, to the final cage match. Yeah. All right, John. Well, this has really been awesome. Thank you so much for coming in. And everyone needs to read this book and buy this book. But uh, thank you so much for coming in and talking about it. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. It really was. Thank you. <laughs> So that was John Dickerson. The book and the podcast are Whistle Stop. I encourage you to engage yourself with both of them as soon as you possibly can. No One Knows Anything is produced by me, Meg Kramer, with editorial oversight from Catherine Miller and Eleanor Kagan, and production help from Julia Furlon and Antonia Cerahito. Our music is composed by Beauty Pill. Subscribe to No One Knows Anything on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at No One Knows. Or you can email us at no one knows anything at buzzfeed.com. I'm your host, Evan McMorris Santoro. And as always, burn this podcast. One last note before we go No One Knows Anything is going to take a two week break. We'll be back again the week of August 15th. See you then.